0: this podcast contains sensitive content which some may find disturbing information shared here should not be construed as medical advice if you or someone you love needs help with trauma chronic pain or anything else we discuss here please seek out a medical professional all resources shared are for entertainment purposes only all content represents the opinions of kim and anna and any special guests and do not necessarily reflect the positions of any organizations they work for
1: This is not ideal, but we're going with it. A mother-daughter podcast about chronic pain, trauma, mental illness, and more. Kim is a trauma therapist and certified addiction counselor who lives in Pennsylvania, USA. And her daughter, Anna, is a scoliosis sufferer and trauma survivor living in the tropical north of Australia. Join us each week as they discuss topics from their life experiences. Welcome to the show
0: hello and welcome this is not ideal but we're going with it the podcast i'm kim and i'm the mom
1: and i'm anna and i'm the daughter and just as a quick recap this is like our fifth take but this time we have my aunt debbie with us and i'm so excited because my mom and i have been criticizing ourselves and no not ourselves but each other for the last hour (laughs) and now we have aunt debbie with us and i think that she's going to save us from ourselves (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we are so excited. So Debbie
0: is my older sister. This is Kim talking. So there's three of us and we want you to be able to figure out who's saying what, but I'm Kim and I'm the younger sister and I have one older sister. Her name is Debbie. She's with us on this podcast. She's been through a lot of things and just an amazing, brave person who's an inspiration to both Anna and myself. So welcome Debbie. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. We're so glad to have you. We just want to start and give you a chance to talk um, just a little bit about trauma that you have been through, and you can share. There's been quite a number of things, and so just pick anything that you want to, either your earliest trauma or... Your most recent or your most difficult whatever you want to talk about and we're going to turn it over to you so welcome
2: thank you um i think i would like to start with our daughter Um, my husband and i were married almost six years and our son was two and a half when we found out i was pregnant with our second child and two days later after we found out i had dropped our son off at daycare and i was brasided by a drunk driver Mm
1: -hmm. and
2: he was not only drunk But he had no license. He ended up in a fight with the police. And my Mm -hmm. car was totaled, which was also Mm -hmm. lovely. But um, I ended up just with a head laceration and minor injuries. That was a big blessing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I felt very vulnerable after that, though. I felt like vehicles were always coming at me. And I worried Mm -hmm. about the baby even though the doctor mm-hmm. told me the baby was fine because I wasn't that far along. So everything seemed to be fine after that. But then I had my six-month ultrasound, and they measured the baby's head and found out the baby's head was too large. Mm-hmm. And at that point, within a 24-hour period, we were told the baby would not survive Um, which was devastating, as you guys can imagine. As you guys actually Mm -hmm. know, it was devastating. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. The baby was diagnosed with holoprosencephaly. And in some cases, a shunt can be placed to drain fluid off of the brain. But our baby's brain and fluid were intermixed. So there was no way to drain any fluid. Um, We asked right away, did the car accident have anything to do with it? And they said, no, this is genetic. And Mm -hmm. we were also told something very scary. We were told that babies that have this um, can have no mouth, one eye in the middle of their forehead, and it's associated Mm -hmm. with the Cyclops monsters myth so that was oh, wow. I know everybody wants the Gerber baby you know and it was like so terrifying because we already knew the baby was gonna die and then when we heard
0: that it was just like it was
1: mm-hmm. awful
0: and that was back when um, x-rays that they did uh, what do you call that the ultrasound they do the, the ultrasound weren't as detailed right couldn't really tell us exactly what was happening and I I remember this of course because um you were pretty early in your pregnancy um when you were diagnosed and when the baby was diagnosed and you carried the baby to full term is that right do you remember how early you were no I had ended up having her two months
2: premature actually yeah because I found out at my six months which was terrifying because I thought, oh no, I've got to carry the baby for three months, you know, and I was so scared. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And then Mm -hmm. a month later, um, I started having severe pain in my back and my legs would go numb. And so my, yeah, it was horrible. Um, My doctor said, your health is declining now. We know the baby's going to die at some point, but now we need to focus on your survival. And so he scheduled me for an emergency C-section. And we were not sure what to do with our son, who was then three, and we wanted him to be able to see the baby if it was appropriate, but we didn't want to see, have him see everybody crying. And the morning we were heading to the hospital, he woke up with chicken pox. And so we felt God answered that big question mm. for us of whether he should be there or not. We were very blessed. We felt we saw that as a huge blessing because everybody at his daycare broke out with the chicken pox on the same day. So he oh, stayed wow. there. I know
0: he stayed there. So that was amazing. And I remember when the baby was born, she was perfectly normal looking except for she had a really large head. Is is that, is that That's, right? Dad? Yes,
2: exactly. And we were so relieved because, Because of her birth effect being so unusual, we had like so many people in there for a teaching moment. Like we had doctors and students Mm -hmm. and everybody in there. And that was the first thing. Um, One of my best friends told us who was a nurse, she said, the baby looks perfectly normal except for the large head. And so she did, it it was, it was so scary, but we were relieved that she wasn't going to suffer anything else. You know, she was already going through enough. We didn't want her to have to go through something horrible, like no mouth or something. Right, right, right. So, um, Kelly lived for nine hours and everyone had left for the day because we thought she was going to be just fine. So we sent everybody home and, um, shortly thereafter they came to the room and said, the baby's having troubles. And so they brought her into me and she actually died in my arms before anybody could get back to the hospital. And that was before cell phones and everything. Um, Mm -hmm. So that was the first time that I felt my heart break into a million pieces and mm-hmm. I started to joke about there isn't enough duct tape in the world to put my heart back together and that's when I started to mm-hmm. say that was because that's what I felt like. And of course dad loving his duct tape, you know that I kinda was kind of a dad mm-hmm. thing that I would say. But mm-hmm. um during that very dark time we felt blessed to have our three year old son because he was such a ray of sunshine, as you can imagine. And um, yeah, he was wonderful. He gave us the hope when we felt hopeless. And I really felt for other couples who lost their first baby, you know, because they Mm -hmm. didn't know the joy, you know, of another child being around when they were going through that. So,
0: Hmm. yeah, he he gave us all something to focus on too, as I recall, Um, just, you know, he's such a bundle of energy and fun and, and just, he was also sad though, because he had really been looking forward to having a younger sister. And that was also heartbreaking to see him sort of deal with that in his own little way.
2: Yes, exactly. And if he would get, if he would get mad at my husband and I, he'd be like, well, fine. I'm going to go live with Kelly. You know, he'd say little mm-hmm. things like that a three-year-old would say, you know, and mm-hmm. and we would just be like, you are so adorable. <laughs> but um, yeah, so he, he really did. He helped us a lot. And I had a lot of guilt because I thought, well, what did I do wrong? I know they said it's genetic, but this was where the first big guilt thing started happening to me where I was just like, what did I do wrong? And I took on the responsibility. Like I didn't blame anyone else. It was all me and I went into some grief counseling and I did fine in the beginning but eventually it just became too much for me because I love people and I started getting consumed by what the other parents were going through and so Mm -hmm. we had children that were strangled by blind cords we had children Mm -hmm. that drowned in the bathtub I mean I felt Mm -hmm. all of them went through worse than what I went through so I was taking that home with me like I was like oh that's too traumatic. That's too traumatic. So I started to feel I was turning the grief counseling thing into something that it shouldn't be. I was, I don't know, I was just taking on too much. And the guilt was just loving that, you know, like feeling bad Mm -hmm. about everything. So yeah, so I stopped.
0: You actually, I remember, I don't know how much longer, how much time passed, but you actually wrote a book. Uh, that I remember called No Candles on the Cape.
2: Yes, Mom and I did that, and it ended up being a very therapeutic thing. We got all of our words down, and then we went to the um trying to remember which place we went. It was one of the Christian bookstores or um, publishers – and they said they had just gotten so much of that exact same kind of books that they said, come back in a few years. And of course, by then, mom and I were like, we were over it. It was like, we don't feel like dealing with this book again. Like, as if I even just started to read some of the poetry that I wrote in there or anything like that, it depressed me. I was like, nope, uh, yeah, maybe in 10 years, you know, but we never did. We not, I, I really regret that. We never went back to that, but it was it did what it was supposed to do. It really helped mm. us both by just getting it down on paper.
0: That seemed like one of the most helpful things, even for me, because I was able to read all your thoughts and your poems and things like that. And that was really gave a lot of insight and helped me also process, even though I obviously wasn't, you know, I was off at college, so I wasn't a major part of everything that was happening like you and mom and dad and Miles and Seth.
2: But you were great. You were great being there for me and you made me laugh a lot, which I needed. I mean, you kept the humor going that I need. Humor is huge for me to keep me, you know, I don't know.
0: It just helped me a lot, Kim. Oh, thanks. Well, and then talk about, um, so you didn't, you, you tried the grief counseling and you did not return to counseling after that. You did work on the book and then fast forward to, um, anything else that, that kind of hit you as traumatic. Um, yes, I would say there
2: have been so many things, but another major thing would be in 2005 after almost 23 years of marriage uh, my husband and i were so excited because our son had just gotten married and he had moved into a house that we helped him build and it was right next to our property and late one night after we had gone to bed we received a next walkie-talkie call from him saying that he and his wife needed help and they were in separate vehicles on their way home and were being harassed by a carload of guys And my husband jumped in his truck to go help while he told me to stay home and man the phones because he figured, like, if my daughter-in-law needed to come flying up to our house to get help, then I could call 911 or whatever they needed. So to make a long story short, eventually we could not get a hold of my husband and our son, who was alone at that moment, was the one that found him dead in his truck. Mm-hmm. And he called me and started screaming, help me, mom, dad's dad, dad's dad. And he's screaming this mm-hmm. into the phone. And it was the most helpless feeling to not be able mm-hmm. to be there to protect him. And that was like, that was so devastating. I mean, I, I jumped in my vehicle, my daughter-in-law had made it safely home to her house, and we flew up the road, and we saw them trying to revive him in the middle of the street, and it was, it was horrible. I mean, I can still relive every second of that traumatic thing, that, and all of us went through it. My, you know, all of you guys,
1: mm-hmm. you know, his
2: family, it was, it was horrible, and um, my son, I just felt, the guilt, this was another big guilt thing because I shouldn't have listened to my husband. I should have just gotten in the truck anyway and gone with him. And, you know, you just Mm -hmm. relive everything and wish you had a rewind button.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then after, after that, and one of my most vivid memories, because you are such a loving and compassionate person is just you taking care of everybody and just trying to help everybody get through this major tragedy. And, you know just looking at you and seeing this amazing person helping everybody but thinking who how who's helping her <laughs> I remember thinking that
2: I felt responsible because the kids had just gotten married and I wanted them to have a normal start to their yeah. you know to their lives together and it was such a happy time for us it was such a happy time and then when that happened it was like the whole world just crashed in and it was mm-hmm. just it was awful but you're right for me I was trying to hide behind that and I just wanted Mm. to take care of everyone else like you know Mm -hmm. I I'm gonna be fine I'm gonna be fine but I never dealt with those real emotions
0: and how old was Miles when he died of a heart attack um
2: he was 42 he was actually three weeks from his 43rd birthday
0: so he was young yeah Mm -hmm. that was awful And did you get any kind of care that was actually helpful following that tragedy, Debbie? Um, I
2: didn't want to go into grief counseling because I was scared, which I never really thought about the fact that I should have looked into one-on-one grief counseling. Um, The group stuff had freaked me out so much that I just didn't even consider it, but... I have so many wonderful family members like you guys and my friends that I could talk to about everything. So I felt like I was handling it correctly. I mean, every now and then I would have a breakdown. I had one time at work that um, You Are So Beautiful came on the radio and Miles sang that to me, which I knew I wasn't mm. beautiful, but the man was just oh, wonderful. You are too
0: beautiful. No,
2: but I'm just saying he was he was just so sweet. That song came on and I started hyperventilating like I can remember that. Mm that vividly and I freaked everybody out because I hadn't been reacting like they were like oh no what do we do you know they're all panicking and the only reason I'm laughing is just because this to see everybody's face be like she really is in trouble you know and that was the first time they actually saw it like I it was so raw it was awful but I needed to let it out I really did and that so it ended up I felt so much better after that.
0: And then it was um, several years before you even considered dating again or doing anything like that. Can you talk about that period of time? And still you hadn't gotten any one-on-one counseling at that point, right? Exactly.
2: Yes. I was not interested in dating at all. And then I met a wonderful man like a year and a half afterwards, and he was a widower as well. And we were able to just go out at night and just talk through all the harrowing things that we had been through. And that was my first step into dating. And I would just like to say, dating in your 40s is horrible. Like I (laughs) was the last time I had dated, I was 17. So, you know, I got married at 19. So Mm -hmm. it was horrible. I did not like
1: it. Wait, hold on. You got married at 19 too? Yes. Oh my word. Wow, I didn't even realize that. Debbie, you and I are so similar in so many ways. I know. Through this whole interview, I've been thinking, holy cow, there are so many parallels between, like, especially the way that you dealt with a lot of your, you know, these tragedies, even the fact that you wrote a book, you know, and now mom and I are writing a book about our story. how therapeutic you said that was and you know we can definitely relate to that and even how you were sharing about how you hyperventilated because a very similar thing happened to me all of a sudden when somebody mentioned the date of my surgery this was a few months ago and i had a terrible panic attack and it was the first time i'd ever had a panic attack and i had felt so fine about everything that had happened to me you know like at least that i i felt like i was dealing with it just fine And then all of a sudden, all it was was somebody over the phone said, oh, yeah, you know, how about we start this new thing that we're going to be doing together? How about we start that on July 30? And I said, okay, that's fine. And I hung up the phone and I just had a a massive panic attack and I'd never had one before. And, you know, so that is just, I'm just seeing so many similarities. It's Mm -hmm. unbelievable.
2: I know it and your podcast I mean when I listen to you guys talking it's just amazing it's like oh my word you guys are not only helping each other but you're helping mm-hmm. reach out to so many others oh, it's very therapeutic so and sweet. you guys are doing a wonderful job
1: thank you Oh thank you Aunt Debbie So
0: Debbie talk about um talk more about dating and when you got married for the second time, if, you know, anything else you want to share.
2: Okay. So, um, in 2009, um, I married my second husband. Um, I joked forever and ever about how I was never going to get married again. And then four years later, I married a great guy. Um, I used to joke with him. I get to die first this time. And he would say that ain't going to happen. Cause I'm five years older than you. And <laughs> we would laugh about it and everything. And I would say, don't make me punch you because I mm-hmm. cannot go through this again, you know, and, but he really helped me through a really sad time where I just didn't feel worthy of another man in my Mm -hmm. life. And I didn't like dating. And so when we fell in love, it was like, I could feel like a little piece of my heart starting to heal. I mean, Mm -hmm. I still had a little voice in the back kind of telling me I was a loser. I I fought that forever Mm -hmm. since my first husband died, but, um, it just started healing and, um, he became a wonderful piece of my life. And then in 2015 after almost 7 years of marriage he woke me up and said it he said that he needed help and he was having chest pain and I could not believe it it was like 3:30 mm. in the morning and I jumped up I grabbed him baby aspirin and I immediately called 911 And I told them, I said, um, as soon as we're done, they were sending an ambulance over. And I said, as soon as we're done, I need to call my son because he lives just down the driveway. And I don't want him seeing this ambulance racing up the driveway. I want to be able to tell him. So I called him right away. And the ambulance got there. My husband was talking and everything. And they rushed him to the hospital. And my son and I followed. And we arrived shortly thereafter. And when we got there, he was still talking. But he was in severe pain. Um, And but I just felt this relief, like I I felt so much better that he was actually someplace that could help him. He wasn't alone in his truck. You know, he was Mm -hmm. being being taken care of. And Mm -hmm. um, we could just tell that he was upset because he had just recovered from that trench collapsing. Remember that Kim that crushed his leg. And so. I knew that following Monday morning, he was going to be released back to do all of his normal activities. So I could tell he was mad because he probably was thinking, this is going to be another setback. I'm not going to be able to do all the things I want to do. And so Mm -hmm. unfortunately, my last memories of him are, you know, he is upset. I mean, he was still Mm -hmm. loving to me in the ER as much as he could with so much pain, but Mm -hmm. he was mad. But um, my mom and or our mom and my first husband's sister arrived at the hospital shortly thereafter. And the surgeon came in and said, your husband will die without surgery. He said, there's no other way to say this, but we need to rush him back right now. And so I quickly told him how relieved I was that he made it to the hospital. And um, I said, whereas my first husband had died alone in his truck and they took off running with him down the hall and took him to surgery. And as we're sitting in this little room off to the side, Um, we all of a sudden heard a code called overhead. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And I looked at my family and I said, that's him coding. That means that he has stopped breathing at some point. I said, it doesn't mean it's hopeless, but I just had this horrible feeling in my gut, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. And um, sure enough, it wasn't too much later. The surgeon came walking in and he had tears just streaming down his face. He was crying. And I said, well, I take it. That's not good news. And he said no he said we tried to save him we ended up having to do open heart surgery on him and he died on the table and Mm. I just could not believe it and of course I always want to make everybody else feel better so I like hugged him and I was like starting to cry and I was just like oh I you know thank you so much and then all of a sudden that reality hit me and I started screaming I was like this cannot be happening again. Please tell me this is not happening again. And I mean, I was just like screaming out, like I said, I was going to take better care of this husband, you know, just ridiculous things that just were blurting out. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, we need to take this crazy person into a quiet room. Cause I was like Mm -hmm. upsetting the whole place of course. Mm -hmm. And, um, so yeah, I was hysterical and, at that point i wasn't even sure that i had a heart left to break i mean i was just so mm. devastated and i just felt more guilt like how could i have saved him what could i have done this is my second chance at happiness and i was just i was just devastated
0: it was heartbreaking yeah it was bad so and then it was the all the funeral arrangements and all you know everything that comes along with that and yeah a lot of you comforting people again, as I remember, and taking care of a lot of people. And you also had um, your first husband's parents you were taking care of at that time. Is that right? Um, I wasn't so much taking
2: care of them. Their daughter was taking care of them, um, the majority. But my son and I were trying to and my daughter-in-law were trying to help like whatever we could do because their health were, was
0: failing too. So, yeah, that was tough. That was a, it was a rough time. Mm -hmm. And you also have a job that's pretty high stress in a hospital. So it's not like you're, you know, having just restful places to recover and, and relax all the time.
2: Yeah, I absolutely loved my job and the people that I worked with. Um, But the job I'm in now is more stressful than it was back then. But you're right. I still had to be on the ball. Like, I couldn't let my brain quiet down. And, you know, I had to keep going and going and going. And, um, but the support that I received from work was amazing. Like, they helped me get through on a daily basis because you do have to go right back to work. And, you know, they were amazing, along with my family and friends. All of you guys helped me so much.
0: And then, Debbie, you still had not had any kind of care at this point um, after, you know, you've had these three major tragedies and you're just trying to kind of keep going. At what point did you find any care that was actually helpful to you? Can you talk about that at all? Um, Basically,
2: it was just friends and family that I reached out to. Um, I really did not, I didn't even think I needed it. I just, I almost felt like I was, hopeless to a point of like, you're just gonna have to deal with this. You're just gonna have to mm-hmm. get through this. You're just gonna have to put one foot in front of the other. And of course, my faith in God, you know, I I talk to God all the time. And I just said, I don't understand why that couldn't have been my happy, you know, why that couldn't mm-hmm. have been my recovery. And I just also felt the guilt of my son again going through it and mm-hmm. the rest of the family. But I, you know, just focused on my son. Like he's been through so much and here we go again.
0: And uh yeah, so there was just a lot of that. So Debbie, up until that point, so you've had these three major tragedies and still no individual counseling. Can you talk about when you did find someone that you could meet with individually and what type of therapy really helped you or you found helpful? I sure can. Um, well, something
2: that was very helpful to me was after a major crash in my life where I just I was having so much trouble dealing with anything. I, I was so devastated and the guilt couldn't have been worse. Like I just... I didn't feel worthy. I felt like a loser, um never going to marry again. I just everything was horrible. Like I just felt like those were your chances. You know, you've lost mm. a you've lost two husbands and a daughter. What more can you do to devastate your family? It's kind of how I felt. And mm. I finally was able to get some counseling and it was amazing because even like the very first session, sitting and talking to my counselor, they're like, where is this guilt coming from? You know, did you kill your daughter? Did you, are you the one that killed your husband? You know, and, but I mean, I had never looked at it like that. The guilt had always just been so big that I never was able to rationalize, I guess. I, mm-hmm. I just could never... I never it was always about me. It was like me, I'm the one. And hmm. once we started talking um and I had they gave me homework and and also you were able to help me a lot. I spent hours and hours on the phone with you talking things through and it was like Suddenly it started to all make sense to me that I was just putting myself through so much and Mm -hmm. blaming myself for everything that happened. And Mm -hmm. once I started to feel that guilt kind of lift off my shoulders, it was crazy. It was amazing. Like what healthy brain can do for you.
0: Yes. And you know that it's so interesting because I remember vividly you apologizing to everyone for how hard this suffering was for everyone else and it never occurred to me you know how you were carrying that guilt of everything that you yourself had gone through and that can be such a you know such a debilitating part of this and i'm just so thankful that they identified that early on and and got right to that you said Yes. And
2: and then they diagnosed me with PTSD, which at first I was like, no, I I cannot have PTSD because I always think of that as being the police and the military and everybody else. But they said, oh, no, you are the perfect person to be diagnosed with this. Mm -hmm. And I started to realize that the trauma doesn't have to be life threatening, to traumatize you. Like Mm -hmm. sometimes a close call is all it takes. Your brain just plays it over and over. And it's that panic that Anna and I were talking about too, like where you have those panic attacks, like my chest, it would feel like someone was stabbing me right in the chest bone or someone was standing on my chest bone. I should say, can't breathe. You can't breathe. I mean, I would open my bedroom window up and stand there and try to breathe there and be like, what is going on? I didn't Mm -hmm. have a name for it.
1: Right. Yeah. And that's even, I remember even thinking, I, I was so confused because I. it's like your body gets away from you and you can't breathe. And for me, I couldn't see. Like my vision when, you know, all the sides of my vision blurred out. And I remember thinking, what's happening to me right now? Because it's not that you you know, oh my word, I'm having a panic attack. It's that your brain, you know, it's just the chemicals start to overload you. And you think, this is not how my brain normally works. What is going on? Why can I not see? Why can I not breathe? Why why does my chest hurt? And I just remember being just totally confused as to why my body was suddenly betraying me like that. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, that's how I was. And the only panic attack I had ever had before was in an MRI machine
1: because mm-hmm.
2: I realized that was not that real closeness thing. I made it through it, but I'm just saying I never had a name for it. Like I didn't realize I just thought, what is wrong with me? And Mm -hmm. then once they diagnosed me, I started reading up on everything and I'm like, oh,
0: yeah, that's me. Oh, yeah, that's me. Mm hmm. And Debbie, you bring up a great point. Some people think, oh, I have to be the one who thinks they're about to die. But actually, if you're close to any type of life or death or traumatic situation, it can cause, you know, PTSD. And, and so that's a, a really important distinction to make that a lot of people don't understand that I have been traumatized and I need the care for my trauma. So that's such a great point. Yeah, it was,
2: it was amazing. It was such an eye opening experience. Like, and something that I learned also from my counseling was, if you're blaming yourself for something, and you're feeling guilty, and you're beating yourself up, don't be embarrassed that you need help dealing with that, get somebody to listen to you. And I felt like I was, telling people. But apparently all these wonderful people that are saying, call me at two in the morning, you know, I'm here for you, whatever. But the problem was I wasn't sharing those intimate things of like, I feel unworthy to even Mm -hmm. be around and you know blame myself for everything that happens and there was just so much guilt I just couldn't see clearly through that
0: and well also because you were such a caretaker you didn't want to burden everybody else with your story you were worried about stressing other people out which is where sitting with somebody who you don't have to worry about stressing out can be so helpful do you feel like that's true?
2: Yes, I definitely do. And I learned that your pain is unique to you, you know, so therefore your healing is so no one knows except for you exactly what you're feeling. You have to give yourself a break and you have to let yourself heal in your own time. Um, But obviously, if you're standing still in the healing process, then you need to get therapy. You need to get some help so that you can move forward. And I was stuck like on a treadmill is the way that we described it. Like I was just like, I wasn't going anywhere. I was like stuck.
0: Hmm. And when you, when you say that, um, if you're standing still, I love that. If you're standing still in your recovery, what would be some examples uh, that people might draw to mind, you know, be able to see, oh, maybe I'm also standing still in my recovery. What would you say it might be happening to the person?
2: Um, I guess. One of the things would be like, if they're obsessing over everything, like for me, I was obsessing over people that I cared about and I thought they were all going to die. Like you, all of you guys included, I was just like, I was forgetting to trust God with that. I was just totally like, I don't know, it was in my brain all the time. I had another thing where I I just always felt like I had, like you said, I had to protect others from my emotions. I had Mm -hmm. to hide them instead of letting myself be emotional and uncomfortable um, because sometimes it's very uncomfortable to cry in front of others and let them see that vulnerable side. Mm-hmm. And I just, that helped me a lot. Once I realized it's okay to cry, it's okay to reach out and say, I need more help. I can't do this by myself. And God is always there, but sometimes it's just so terrifying that you're just like, I feel, I felt like I was reaching out, but I wasn't, I was just, you know, kind of putting a fence around myself.
0: Really? Wow. Yeah.
2: And one of the other things that I found was, you know, stay strong in your faith. Um, For me, I knew God was walking with me. And of course, we've said this before, Kim, uh, carrying us at times. Um, Mm -hmm. But for me, praying and talking to God all the time helped me a lot being more honest with my friends and family and saying, okay, I can't and saying no, when I had to, like, I just always felt like I had to keep going and going and going. It's like, nope, you know what? I need some quiet time. Mm -hmm. And, um, one of the things that we said in therapy was I felt before therapy, I felt like I was in a boat that was being pulled away from the shore. Mm
1: -hmm. And when I would
2: get those panic attacks, I would jump into the water and try to swim But instead, I was drowning and I could never reach the shore or safety. I just always felt that hopeless feeling of like, you just can't do it. You're not strong enough. You can't do it. And then after I started getting a healthier brain, if I felt that panic coming on, and I've told you many times, Kim, this is what I would do, um, I would picture myself in that boat again. But this time, I would picture myself riding the waves And going over them gently, going over the swells gently. And I would visualize the waves taking me gently back to shore instead of away. And it was like my safe place. Mm -hmm. And I've got to be honest with you guys, on my really bad days, I'd get in that boat like mm. three times a day i really would mm-hmm. it was the only, i would have to stop and have that quiet time i mean i did i would have to stop and and do that because i just didn't know that was one of my coping mechanisms it worked for me so you know hopefully it would work for somebody else to be able to find their safe place mm-hmm. and do that i don't know if it would help them the same way it helped me but it definitely
0: kept me from my panics mm-hmm i think that's so cool and then tell us about any other coping strategies you found really helpful after you learned some skills. I know you do art. Uh, you're an incredible illustrator. I I don't know if you found that therapeutic. Any, what else did you find therapeutic during this period of time?
2: Uh, definitely writing. I love to write and I do love the artwork is, is a big thing for me and I need to find more time for that because it's very, it's very peaceful for me when I can do drawing and do the writing and everything. Um, but yeah, that is definitely that quiet time. I love to do crossword puzzles, you know, just sitting at night sometimes because, you know, being widowed and I'm never, ever marrying again, ever, ever, ever. Um, <laughs> I sit alone in the evenings and watch my favorite show was just kind of de stress from a busy day and I sit and do crossword puzzles and... You know, you just find your happy place. Like I don't sit around thinking, woe is me, I'm alone, you know, and and I don't think about that because I myself am putting myself in this position. I've decided... At this point, I do not want to be with anyone. And I don't know. I guess it's just about making decisions that are healthy for you. And for me right now, this is what's healthy for me is to Mm -hmm. just take my, you know, do some of the fun things that I've always wanted to do. And I love to watch my son play softball and spend time with the grandkids and just, you know, I guess surround yourself with the people that make you feel safe and happy.
0: Mm -hmm. Any, any questions you've got, Anna? I'm sorry. I've been monopolizing.
1: (laughs) No, that's okay. okay. No, I have loved listening I cried a couple times. I had to mute my microphone. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, my word, Debbie. Yeah, I want to go over to her thing. (laughs) No, no, no. It was fantastic. I've loved listening. I mean, I know I was so young. I mean, I wasn't even, I hadn't been born yet when everything was happening with Kelly. And then when, when your first husband passed, I was quite young. I remember that was the first funeral I ever went to. And... You know, I haven't really, because I was so young, I haven't really had a chance to hear everything over again. Do you know what I mean? I haven't had a chance to really hear the story of how everything actually happened with an adult brain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And now hearing it, it just... I just can't believe everything that you've gone through. And I remember finding out, I remember I was already living here in Australia when your second husband passed. I remember getting the message from my mom explaining, I woke up in the morning to see that he had been brought to the hospital. And and then I got the message saying that he had passed. And I just remember, I had just stood up from my bed and I remember just sinking back down to my bed and looking at that message on my phone. And I remember whispering at my phone, just the word, no, you know. Yeah. This can't be happening, you know, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'm just hearing it over again. I'm crying.
0: I'm sorry. We love you so much, Debbie. And, you know, we're so thankful for you to share your story. Is there anything that you would say to people who have suffered with multiple traumas? And I know this thing about the guilt that a lot of people don't realize this false guilt um, can really have such a devastating impact. Is there anything you want to say about that or anything to people who are suffering with kind of this, um, you know, with their own tragedies? Don't give up. There's
2: always someone to reach out to. if If you have people in your life that you can call at any time, don't think, oh, I don't want to bother them. Do it. Call them. If there's someone you trust, call them. If there's no one in your life that you trust, please reach out to someone who can help you find a therapist. Mm -hmm. I mean, even if you're not comfortable going to, like for me, like group therapy is wonderful for people, but for me, it wasn't, it wasn't what I needed. I just needed one-on-one, but I would just say- Please don't give up. Find someone willing to listen to you. And even if you go to a therapist and it's not a good connection with that person, you don't feel it. I've known so many people that were like, Well, I didn't like it because of that person. Go find a different person because you need to find the person you're going to connect with. Because I was very blessed and found the person immediately that I mean, I felt this connection. She said, You can call me day, night, whatever you need. And I knew that was honest. Like, It was just her saying, reach out to me, reach out to me. And that's what I needed. I never really had to call her, you know, but I knew that I had her in my phone Mm -hmm. and she was there and she was someone who wasn't going to judge me because even people who love you dearly, love you so much, you can feel that judgment like, oh, they're going to judge me if I'm so needy. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Mm
0: -hmm. And
2: so that I would just say, you know, reach out. And I just want to I just want to close with saying something that this is something just precious to me is the song Amazing Grace. Mm -hmm. And of course, I hear we sing it at church all the time. But I just want to say, in closing, remember these words. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And that's how I feel. And I'm sorry I wasn't going to cry, you guys. But (laughs) I want to tell you both, I love you so much. And thank you for having me.
0: We We love you so much, Deb. Thank you for sharing your story. And I'm so glad we can cry and not be ashamed of crying. Crying is pain leaving the body and we have plenty of it. So
2: yeah, we love you. I love you too. And I wanted to say, God bless you both for what you're
0: doing. Well, God bless you. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your story. And we look forward to, you know, you're our most faithful follower. Like you're, you're, you're up there. You you won the, you won the, you were the only contest, uh, participant. (laughs) Want coasters and I love those coasters by the way. Oh, good, they arrived. Are they good? Yes, I love them. Oh, yay! You need to send us a picture of you using the coasters.
1: <laughs> they almost got stopped crossing the border because the post lady thought that it was untreated timber that I was trying to send <laughs> across state, across country borders. Are they boomerangs? <laughs> are they, are they boomerangs? No, they're little, they're hand cut little like silhouettes of the country of australia and then they have a hand-painted kangaroo in like traditional aboriginal style art you're so cool i'll send you a picture oh good yes and we're we're so
0: your support has meant so much debbie because without your support we would have very little support (laughs) thank you so much for being our first review guest and for doing this this uh program today anna anything you want to say
1: I just wanted to say that in honor of her being our most faithful follower, I think that in, by the end of this episode, we should just put out a quick notice. Like we always Send out a quick shout out to Matthias, and in honor oh. of Debbie, I think we should also send a quick shout out to Gerard Butler, who is her, who is her Matthias. Yeah. <laughs> so Gerard, we would love to have Matthias on, but Gerard, we would also love to have you on our podcast. Either one, <laughs> if you would like to guest on. Ellen, Debbie would make a great
0: third guest. You could have Matthias and Gerard on your show, and it would be a great time. So.
1: <laughs> oh are you talking to Ellen DeGeneres now yeah Ellen fly me up from Australia fly Debbie in fly fly my mom in and then also and then please have Matthias and Gerard waiting behind the curtain we love you Ellen our whole interview. We, love you we love you Ellen <laughs> all right well I
0: am Kim I'm the mom we are signing off thank you so much for
1: being with us and I'm Anna. I'm the daughter. Yeah. Thank you for listening. I hope you guys all had tissues here while you were listening. I wish that I had had tissues. My sleeve is all gross.
0: <laughs> yes. And Debbie, we love you. Thank you so yeah. much. You want to sign off? Debbie?
2: Love you too. I'm Debbie, the older sister and the auntie, and I love you both.
1: We love you. All right. Love you so much, Debbie you. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Thank you guys for joining us today. Stay tuned for more podcasts from Anna and Kim on the new series, Not Ideal, But We're Going With It. Also, check out their new website at www.notideal.net.